So I don't know how many of you are familiar with the newest trilogy of Batman movies that came out, right? So you have Batman Begins, then you have The Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises. So at the end of The Dark Knight, what happens is you you realize that there's all these bad things going on in, in Gotham. And then there's this quote at the end of the movie where they realize, at least... One person realizes, good old Commissioner Gordon, right, realizes that Batman is not the hero we necessarily would have chosen for ourselves. But he's the hero they need in that moment. Because what it is, is Batman's willing basically to become the bad guy. For everybody to be willing to, he's not willing to unmask himself in order to appease the Joker, who's the bad guy in that movie, right? But he's willing to keep the mask on and take the heat for it, to become the bad guy for it. He's the hero that they need, though he may not be the hero they wanted or would have chosen for themselves. And I kind of see that similar with this morning as we look at the Old Testament, what it means for Christ to be the coming servant. When Israel thought of a Messiah, they wouldn't have necessarily put the term servant with it. Because to them, servant was kind of a lowly position, So it would have been thought that that's not necessarily what we need. We need the king, right? We need someone who's going to overtake Rome on our behalf. Not someone who's going to come as a lowly servant. Not someone who's necessarily going to experience strife. Someone who's going to be beaten. Someone who's going to be killed. But someone rather who's going to give us victory. Right? So as we get into this, this morning, I want us to have that kind of concept in mind that That while we read servant in the Old Testament pointing towards Christ in the New, that wasn't a term that they necessarily would have liked to hear about. And so when they think of servant, they might have not necessarily been thinking nearly as lowly as we now, looking back, understand Christ and his coming. But we begin the story of servanthood with Adam and Eve, right? That Adam and Eve are created as God's agents in the world. But they failed to live as as he calls them to. So later we see that God calls Abraham, right? And he says, I'm going to create a nation out of your children. Out, Out of your descendants, there's going to be a nation made, Israel. And through Israel, God says, I'm going to display myself to the world. Then we get to David. And we see this phrase actually used specifically of David, kind of this this servanthood idea really kind of starts to come to fruition, though we see elements of it with Adam and Eve all the way through, this actual term servant of the Lord is first applied to David. That David is walking faithfully with the Lord. That David is a man after God's own heart. But we also will see that it's a phrase used for the coming Messiah to be the servant of the Lord, especially in the book of Isaiah, which is where we're going to camp out most of today. But as we get into the prophets today, I want us to understand something about prophecies. That there's often twofold purposes in prophecies. There was often an immediate actualization of the prophecy, and then a later fulfillment of the prophecy. And so what we'll actually see here is, there's many times throughout Isaiah that we see the nation of Israel called God's servant... But then we see, by reading what this servant does, how Christ ultimately fulfills in the way that Israel failed to be that servant. 
right? So there's this immediate actualization that Israel is God's servant and meant to live this way, but as they fail it, God is actually going to use Christ to bring it to full realization for it all to climax in, in him. So our first point today as we talk about the coming servant is we see that Christ is the true servant, right? Just like I said, we, we saw David described as a servant of the Lord. We also see Israel described as the servant of the Lord, the one who is displaying God to the world. Look at Isaiah chapter 41, verses 8 and 9. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Right, So we have a reference to Abraham, this idea that Israel has been chosen from the world to be the Lord's people. And it makes sense. Israel has been chosen to be a servant of God, to serve God. But again, we know that the prophets can tend to get a little tricky. Though he's clearly speaking about Israel here, it's not much later in Isaiah that we see a term about servant that we see a little bit more nuance in it. Look at Isaiah Chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That sounds a lot more like someone that's not Israel, doesn't it? Right? First of all, it's in the future tense. Right? My servant will act wisely. He shall be high. He shall be lifted up. He shall be exalted. There's this future element to it. Right? And we saw that this wasn't Israel. Israel ends up in exile. They don't end up exalted. So we see that just a a few chapters later, we have a servant that is someone other than Israel. So the whole point here is, there are clear indications in the prophets of Israel being the servant, but there's also this twofold purpose of pointing towards a coming servant, a later realization of all of this. And we see that this culminates in Christ being the true servant. Because of what we know as we get into the New Testament, we see Christ fulfilling all of this. Where Israel was called to be the servant of the Lord, they ultimately fail at it. So there needs to be a true Israel. Because Israel fails. There needs to be a fulfillment of what Israel was meant to be. And so Christ comes on the scene and we see the fulfillment of everything the servant was called to do. Let me just give you one Passage from the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 15. Listen to this. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen... My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. You catching what Matthew's doing here? He's telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage out of Isaiah that's talking about a servant. 
So let's take a look back in Isaiah to this passage that Matthew quotes and take a look to see what Israel was supposed to be doing and what Christ fulfills. So this is Isaiah chapter 42. This is what Matthew's quoting here. Isaiah 42, read verses 1 through 4. It says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. There's a number of things mentioned here, but let's just break it down real quick. About this servant, Matthew quotes the saying that Jesus fulfills this. About this servant, right from the get-go, verse 1, we find God is saying his soul delights in this servant. So God delights in this servant. Servant. God finds delight in this servant that he has chosen. Clearly, we can read this and think, well, surely God finds delight in Israel, doesn't he? And there is an element of truth to that. But if God finds delight in Israel, who is idolatrous, how much more delight is he going to find in his sinless son? Right? So if Israel is the servant somewhat in this, then they're supposed to be the servant at least. And God delights in them. How much more is God going to delight in his son who actually fulfills everything that the servant is meant to do? So first, God finds delight in him. The second thing we find in verse 1, I have put my spirit upon him. So God's spirit has now been put upon the servant. This one is what should really start to give us some real clarity on separating Israel from Jesus. Because the Spirit was never put upon the entire nation of Israel. It was given to specific individuals at points in the Old Testament in order for them to live out what God had called them to do in leading the people of Israel. But Israel, as an entire group, never had the whole Spirit upon them. Instead, God's presence dwelled in the tabernacle and the temple. He never poured out His Spirit upon the whole group of people. So if Israel's the servant, but they've never had the Spirit of the Lord fully upon them, it makes sense now that Christ is the full fulfillment of all of this. That Christ is the one who the Spirit comes upon. And we know that this is true, right? From our study in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist said this. He said, I saw the Spirit come down upon him, and I saw the Spirit remain upon him. So we see that Christ is actually the fulfillment of This part of it, number three, he will bring forth justice to the nations. The last part of verse one, justice will go to the nations through this servant of the Lord. This was supposed to be Israel, right? Originally, it was supposed to be Adam and Eve, wasn't it? Their command was to what? Be fruitful and multiply, to spread the glory of the Lord throughout the earth. They failed, so now it was given to Israel, chosen from Abraham. I'm going to make all nations of the earth blessed through you. But they go, and instead they start acting like the nations instead of being faithful to the Lord and displaying his glory. So they fail at this. So ultimately, this justice, this element of displaying God's way of life to the rest of the world, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. 
verses 2 through 4 flesh this out. And we're not going to go through every part of them, but let's just really quickly, generally describe. The servant comes executing justice, not by screaming, not by shouting from the rooftops, not by being harsh, right? A bruised reed he will not break. So he does it with a gentleness. He doesn't do it faintly. He doesn't do it in a discouraging way. How anti is this compared to our government right now? Right? Think of these phrases. Our political leaders, right, shout from the rooftop, shout from every social media platform possible of how they are right, and you need to listen to them. How harsh is our media against the political candidate that they disagree with? How discouraged are we as the people who are supposed to be supported by this government? But Christ is the complete opposite of all of that. Right? Christ does it without screaming, without being harsh, without being faint, without promoting discouragement. But he does it faithfully, it says. And these are just a couple verses out of the entire book of Isaiah that Matthew picks up and tells us how Jesus fulfills this servant relationship. Let's just go to one other passage in Isaiah to talk about this, of how Jesus is the true servant. Isaiah 49, starting with verse 3. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So we get this from the get-go, right? Israel as the servant. But go down to verse 5 and follow what it says. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. So now it sounds like Isaiah is talking about himself being the servant, doesn't it? We have Israel called the servant. Now Isaiah is talking about bringing Israel back, gathering them back. So it sounds like Isaiah is talking about himself as the servant. But then we go into verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Where have we heard that before? Salvation to the ends of the earth. If you remember, back in August when we did our series in the book of Acts, right? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Right? This has a much more New Testament feel than an Old Testament feel, doesn't it? That a light for the nation, salvation will reach the end of the earth. This is what Israel was called to do, display the glory of the one true God to the nations, but they failed. And if this isn't enough for you, look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Who's this servant? to whom princes and kings prostrate themselves. 
Sounds a lot like Paul in Philippians, doesn't it? One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. So this is clear just in a couple passages in Isaiah that Jesus is the true Israel, the true servant. But as we see Christ as the fulfillment of this, we see that it's not just all these good things that are brought by the servant. It's not just the spirit on him. It's not just executing justice, but there's more to this servanthood, which is where we get to the suffering servant. If you remember the verse that we read, right? Chapter 52, verse 13, where it said, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, shall be exalted. We said that has to be other than Israel, right? This is a coming servant that is going to have all of this. It is flowing out of that that we get into Isaiah 53, which is titled in, in the Bible as the suffering servant passage. That's what it's well known for. So I want to just hit a couple verses out of Isaiah 53 to tell us about this servant and what he does. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So first we find out this servant comes and he's hated by those he comes to. That he's familiar with grief, that men hide their faces from him, that he's not esteemed highly by the people. Does this sound like anybody you know? Go down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This servant come and is rejected by men, despised by men, and then he's crushed by God to be made a guilt offering. It was God's will to crush this servant, to sacrifice him. For what purpose? Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he's crushed by God. This servant is crushed by God, made to be a guilt offering for our sin, for our iniquities. He's pierced because of our transgressions. He's crushed, he's chastised, he's wounded. The Lord lays on him all of our sin. Why? Because of what verse 6, six says there. All of us have gone astray. All of us. Each and every one of us have tried to do things our own way. We've tried to think that we can find things in this world to satisfy ourselves. We're all guilty of sin. But in this servant taking on our sin, taking on the crushing of God that we deserved, it tells us he brings peace to us all. That our wounds, our spiritual wounds, are healed 
by his sacrifice, by him being a substitute for us. And look at the final result. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So the righteous one, the servant, makes many people righteous by taking on their iniquities. The peace that exists between us and God only exists because the servant took on our anguish. His sacrifice results in many of us being declared righteous, not because of our own goodness, but because he has taken our guilt. And then his righteousness is given to us. It's hard to imagine this when you think of like legal terms. Right? There was the, the big case in the news this week, right, of Brandon Bernard, who was executed for a crime that he committed when he was a teenager. Now, regardless of your stance on the death penalty, there was certainty that he was guilty. Right? Like he, he had admitted to his guilt, he knew he was guilty, and there was supposed to be punishment, regardless of what you believe the punishment was supposed to be. I want you to imagine him randomly by a judge being declared innocent. Imagine the uproar of the community, of the, per, the people whose families were affected by this. How can a person so clearly guilty be now determined as blameless? But this is our reality, isn't it? Because of the suffering of the servant in Isaiah, your sin has been paid for. The price of God's wrath, of spiritual death, has already been paid. So that those of us who are so clearly guilty from the get-go can now be declared to be righteous. Brothers and sisters, this child that we are celebrating at Christmas is the servant that will be crushed by God for you. You have gone astray. You have tried to do it on your own. You thought your goodness was enough. You chose your own satisfaction, the desires of your deceitful heart. You are guilty of iniquity and you deserved nothing but eternal separation from God in torment. Torment that will never end. But this baby in a manger grows up to be despised, to be crushed, to take on your sin so that God can look at you and call you righteous. And because of this righteousness, you now are able to be reconciled to God, to relate to God through this servant. Which leads us to our last point. We have the shepherd servant. So we've had the true servant, the suffering servant, now we have the shepherd servant. And this is where we're going to jump out of Isaiah and the prophets and jump to Ezekiel to uncover a final aspect of this coming servant. And we see that this has some direct applications for us as we relate to Christ. Ezekiel chapter 37, starting in verse 24. 
My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. And they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. That shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Did you catch the phrase there? Twice in those verses we see a reference to my servant David. David's dead at this point in the Old Testament. But remember God had made a covenant with David saying... In your offspring, there will be a throne that will be established forever, right? So when we see my servant David in the prophets, we're, we're looking at a coming servant, which we know Christ is in the line of David. So my servant David is talking about Jesus. And so when we, we replace that with Christ, Christ shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. But as this servant becomes king and reigns as our shepherd, there's an expectation from the people who he is reigning over, whom he is shepherd of. It says, they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Those who have Christ as their shepherd walk rightly before the Lord. It makes sense, right? Think about it. Think about Psalm 23, the one we all know so well. What's so comforting about Christ being our shepherd? Why are we comforted by his rod and his staff? Do we not realize that rod and staff are terms to say that he guides us and corrects us when we're going in the wrong way? That he wants us to to walk in a certain direction and he's going to correct us when we're not going in that direction? And we're comforted by that, according to the psalm. Or if we walk through the, the valley of the shadow of death, we have no fear. Why? Because of who we're walking with. Goodness and mercy follow those who have the Lord as their shepherd. So brothers and sisters, God's gift of Christ's righteousness that we saw in Isaiah 53 should make you live righteously as a result of it. It all starts with his gift of his righteousness to you that your iniquity is paid for and you receive righteousness, but in that gift you are to have the way that you live in this world transformed. That those who have received Christ's righteousness begin to live in a righteous way, begin to live in the way that Jesus lives. So you no longer see your bank account as your means of accumulating wealth for retirement, but instead you see it as God's generosity to you in order to expand his kingdom. You no longer look at certain people and see them as a lost cause and you exile them from your life. But your heart feels compassion towards them and you want to display Christ to them. You no longer see children as a way to carry on the family name or the means for you to achieve what you weren't able to achieve at their age. But instead you want them to carry the name of Christ and pursue his glory. That's my prayer every night when I lay my kids down to bed. Is God, may they seek your glory, 
Not my family name, not my last name, not, not that they're making my legacy great, but they, may they make your glory known to the world. Because your life is no longer your own. In the words of Paul, you have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you which is what we see in verse 27. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, we hear this, and we think, that sounds a lot like end of the story, right? End of Revelation, and it is. That's what it's ultimately pointing to. But remember, there's always, prophecies often have the twofold. There's also an element of God dwelling with us even now as his people. Right? Just look at the New Testament, and it's established that God's people are called his temple. The temple of the Spirit are those who believe in Jesus. God's dwelling place in this world right now is through his people, those who have put their faith in Christ. So while we do not see the full reality of God dwelling with us, like at the end of the story, there's a present reality to this. So brothers and sisters, if you've believed in Jesus... God dwells in you. I want you to imagine for a minute the weighty propositions that that means for your life. If God himself, by his spirit, dwells in you, not around you, not above you, not just near you, but in you, does that have any bearing on how you live? I want you to just imagine for a moment the way your life changes when somebody comes to stay at your house. Right? If, if you have family that comes to visit, or if you, if you meet a coworker or something that needs a place to stay and you invite them to your home, do you start to live a little differently in the, in the reality that there's somebody else there with you now? Maybe you clean up more than you would have before, or maybe you cook breakfast more than you did before instead of eating cereal or whatever. You change something when there's people in your home that aren't used to being in your home. That's just people being near you. And now we're talking about someone being in you, and not just anyone being in you, God himself dwelling in you. If this reality doesn't strike you each and every day, Ask yourself, who's my real shepherd? Either Christ is directing your life or you're trying to. So let me urge you today to see the importance of this idea of servanthood. While Israel failed, Christ succeeded. He was the true servant, the true Israel. But not just in the way he lived, not just in the justice he brought, not just in having the Spirit, but in the suffering that he took on as the servant. That as he was hated, as he was beaten, as he was hung on a cross, as he was mocked, as he was crushed by God, all for our sin. So that those who have faith in him could be declared to be not guilty anymore. And for those who trust in him, we also become servants. Not that we're fulfilling the servant passage of Isaiah, but in that we are no longer living for our own pleasures, for our own goals, 
for our own missions, but as those who now live having Christ dwelling in us, God in us. So we commit ourselves to no longer elevate our own rules, our own statutes, but instead we live by God's. As we wait for the day when we will fully see the consummation of this passage, God with us. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So as we approach Christmas this year, may you realize what it means for Christ to be the coming servant. And rising out of that, maybe you realize what it means for him to be your shepherd. Let's pray together. Father, we can't begin to try to understand what it would mean for for Christ to experience all that we deserve. We don't understand what it would mean to to be separated from you for all of eternity. We know the descriptions, we read about it, but we we fully can't comprehend it unless we experienced it. And we praise you that in Christ he took on our sin for us as the servant so that we might become righteous. As we leave here this morning, Father, may you stir in our hearts that we might live with Christ as our shepherd, that we would live in accordance with your way of life, not for our own pleasures, not for our own glory, but for yours. May we become servants in the way that we live, May we become like Jesus, knowing that we, won't fu- we have no need to fulfill what he's done, because he's already done it. But knowing that we look forward to a day when you will fully dwell with us. When you will be our God, and we will be your people for all of eternity. As we approach Christmas this year, Father, May we understand the future of this child that we celebrate. That this child is going to be crushed by you for our sake. But he's also coming back again one day. Full victory for those who trust in him. To set up the eternal kingdom where we will forever be in your presence. May that be on our minds this Christmas season as we celebrate the coming of Christ. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.